Welcome to Ideas at the House, a weekly podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby. My guest today has been on our screens and airwaves for this entire millennium. Yumi Steins got her first media job as a VJ on Channel V in 2000. And since then, she's hosted major network radio and television programs, as well as wildly popular podcasts. She's written two cookbooks and two books of advice for teenage girls. She's had four children. And over the course of all of that, she's developed a reputation for hard work, fierce wit, good humour, and never being afraid to speak her mind. Yumi Steins, welcome back to the Sydney Opera House. Wow, thanks, Edwina. You've got a book out at the moment, which is for young women and girls, about consent. Why did you land on this topic and why do you think it's important right now? Well, first of all, it is for boys and men as well as girls and women. Yeah, good point. Yeah, um, but Dr Melissa Kang, who is better known as Dolly Doctor, the Dolly Doctor. No, from back then. Yes, so she was in that role for 23 years, including when I was a reader of Dolly Doctor. So she and I hit it off at the Sydney Opera House a couple of years ago. Bringing people together. I know! My publisher said, you and Dolly Doctor should write a book together. So we got together and we brainstormed what would be the best book for right now. And so we thought, what's quite narrow that we can nail? We, we absolutely can do this. And that was Welcome to Your Period. It's finite, it's scientific. That one was for girls, right? That was for people who have a uterus. But it also was not particularly political. I mean, menstruation is political, but it's a finite amount of politicisation around female bodies. The next one after that was like, okay, that was a huge success. We won awards. It's been translated to multiple languages. What book will come next? And this time we really sort of consulted with our souls, I think, and thought, what is most urgent? What do the young people to whom we're speaking really need to hear urgently? Coincidentally, Melissa and I both have three daughters and a son. So she has the same configuration as I do with our children. And we've had a lot of conversations with those children about all of these issues. And it felt like we really want to talk about this. Mm. What do you want people to know? So consent is a multifaceted idea. One of the key messages that I think um, we enjoyed teasing out was how power imbalances have such a profound effect on your ability to give consent. You know, people used to really distill it to something terribly simple, which was yes means yes and no means no. And you can put it into an app. <laughs> exactly. And surely if you press yes, you mean yes. Well, sometimes people say yes when they very much want to say no. So sort of trying to find a way to explain very clearly why people would do that. Why would you say yes if you really wanted to say no or if you meant no? And what to do in those situations to keep yourself safe and if you're with a partner to keep them safe as well. How much were you able to draw on your own experiences for that? And how much did you listen to your kids? An unpleasantly large amount I was able to draw on my own experiences. I, I mean, we just did not have these conversations when we were younger. Mm. And how much did your own children feed into it? Because you've got teenage daughters. Yeah, a lot. 
And that was what gave me that sense of urgency. My, my eldest was 18 at the time of writing and the next one down was 15. So they were deep in that scenario of wanting to experiment, of being full of hormones and sexy feelings, but also not being experienced. And I think as we get more experienced, we understand what's good and what's not. And also when someone's kind of taking the piss or pushing our own boundaries, and we understand how to stop that. But when you're just sort of really a beginner in this world, it's really confusing. So you don't know, am I having this feeling because I'm excited or terrified? Like they, they feel very similar. That's right. Mm. So how is the way that your parenting, your girls and boy, mm. similar to or different from the way that you were brought up? Oh, I like it. No one's ever asked me that before, Edwina. <laughs> well, one of the things that my mum did that I've tried to continue to do is talk about your soul. Oh, what, do you, what does that mean? Well, sometimes you can do something that feels like you've done a damage to your soul. And other times you can feel like you've done something that was really good for your soul. And it can be something simple like jumping in the ocean. Oh my God, my soul's like erupting in joy and you feel sparkly and it's, you know, it's magnificent. And other times you may have said an insult to somebody and you, you didn't realise how painful it would be when it landed on them and you see it and you go, oh my soul, I've just, not only have I hurt them, but I've hurt myself as well. So my mum kept that idea very active, which I think is just another way of saying, live ethically mm -hmm. but also have like active conversations about that the things i'm trying to do differently is my mum was is a japanese woman and um like a lot of people from asian cultures found it really hard to talk about sex bodies intimacy even love um in some ways um and so there was a lot of muteness around um, sexuality and so I've really tried to be a lot more frank with my kids. You've actually said um, to quote denial was a sort of parenting strategy back then. Yes, yes Edwina because my mum if she couldn't deal with something she would pretend she hadn't seen me doing it. That sounds quite convenient. Actually. I know. It's like that never happened. So I had like, you know, a massive drinking problem in my teens and she would have been aware to some degree that I was doing that, but she just pretended that she couldn't see it was invisible to her because, and that way we never actually had to confront it. And same with sex, you know, she really didn't want me to be having sex. So she never sort of saw that that might be occurring. It was like a deliberate blind spot. And I often think about it when I go to a place like Tokyo. It's so built up. It's so highly densely populated that people have to deliberately kind of control and marshal their eyelines so that they can't see into their neighbour's house. So it's not that you can't see, it's that you deliberately don't look. And I think maybe it's a cultural thing that my mum just deliberately didn't look at the things that she considered private for me. Was that sort of respectful or was it fearful or was it both? I think it was both, yeah. And I don't know if she'd do it any differently now. I think that's just what we did. Mm. How did she and your father meet? He was a white Aussie from Melbourne, Australia. And he was a bit of a rebel, I think. And he wanted to get his black belt in karate and judo. And back then you could only do that in Japan. Oh, really? Yeah. They didn't have schools in Australia? They had schools, but they didn't have the advanced teachers right. that would help you get to, to those levels. Um, he, he founded a few schools when he returned. but So he spent time in Japan um, training and he used to walk past my mum's house every day. And so they, what, their eyes met across the fence? Or? <laughs> yeah, and she was incredibly beautiful. My dad asked one of my mum's brothers if the brother could teach my dad Japanese. 
And so he sort of ingratiated himself into the home <laughs> and then worked on my mum. <laughs> so he had an agenda from the start. I don't know. I think he might have, yes. <laughs> and how was, how was it for your mum coming and then settling in Australia? Because you lived in Swan Hill, right, which isn't exactly a sort of big city. It's, no. It's, you know, well, country town in Victoria, yeah. basically. Yeah. She said when she arrived there were no paved roads and there was horse poo around. And people would be so arrested by the sight of an Asian woman who was very beautiful that they would stop dead and they, they, their mouths would hang open at the sight of her. And she was a very sophisticated woman from Tokyo. So she was kind of like, oh, what have I done? There's flies and there's, you know, people don't, didn't understand her English. It was tough. Did she become happy? Yeah. And I think she's still happy. She's a very optimistic glass half full, seeing the best sides of people kind of person. So you said before that throughout your teen years you had a sort of drinking problem basically. Mm. Where did that come from? It came from mirroring what I saw. So I just thought what my family was doing at home was normal. So there, there was drinking at home? There was drinking at home, mm-hmm. yeah. And I thought that those quantities of alcohol were really normal. And it, honestly, Edwina, it didn't occur to me that it wasn't normal until I was well into my mid-20s. And then I realised that other people had a single glass of wine, not bottles, and they didn't have, like, beer chasers at the end of the night. And, you know, you don't sort of get warmed up for dinner with a six-pack. Like, I just thought that's what everybody did. That's what your mum and dad did. No, my mum was pretty restrained, but my dad was not. And I don't think he was unique in his peer Mm. group. So how did you come to drinking? Like, you saw it happening in in your household, but, like, you know, was there a moment where you were like, oh, yeah, I'll have some of that? Mm, Yeah, yeah. I think it started really early. I I remember showing off when I was very little, like a toddler, because I liked the taste of beer. And everyone was like, oh, my God, she likes the taste of beer. And I was like, watch this and just... (laughs) being a real rat bag and your parents were like oh. <laughs> isn't it hilarious and then maybe that's enough but you know that was sort of it started very young but then I think once that rebellion urge kicked in at around 13 I discovered that feeling of drinking which I really love to liken to you know when you've got your hair in a tight pony and and it's all sort of back and, and heavy and tight and hard and then at the end of the day, you finally get home and you loosen your pony and it kind of, ah, oh, there's this lovely relief. That's the first couple of drinks. Mm-hmm. Just, I didn't realise I was in pain, but I was, and now the pain is being soothed. And I really connected with that feeling and chased it for a long time. At around the same time, at the end of your teens, your father died. Mm. How did that shift your thinking? Did it shift your thinking? Yeah, it really did. It was a terrible time. Like, you know, when I don't know if there's a good death, but it wasn't a, didn't feel like it was a good way to go. It really felt like he had so much unfinished magnificence. He was only in his early 50s, right? He was in his early 50s. He was such a, like, he was such a mixed character. But for the most part, people remembered him very fondly as an incredibly charismatic guy. The life of the party and somebody who was always kind of saying, let's do this crazy thing. And people would go, okay, let's do the crazy thing. So I I felt like there was so much ahead for him and it was a terrible shame. And when it came to his moment of confronting his mortality... I don't think that it was a moment of graciousness. I think it was horrible for him and terrifying and hugely full of regret. So I was, I mean, this is such a formative experience when anyone's parent dies, but I was 19 and I really felt like, oh, so this is my lesson. My lesson is 
don't wait. Don't put it off. If it's something that you dream to do, do it right now. Did that have something to do with your decision to audition for Channel B? Yes, it did. Really? A direct line? A direct yeah. line. of just kind of because I'd always thought I'm, you know, ugly and Asian and, you know, I'm not sexy. There's just a, a litany of reasons why I don't belong on television. And there was only one reason why I did, which was that I was hugely into music and I had quite an encyclopedic knowledge of the local music scene. So I just thought, well, it's just going to be better to try and fail than not try. And so I gave it a good go. And that was a real, that's a lesson too, is that, okay, well, if you're going to take the step of trying, why don't you actually give it a good try? Don't just half-ass it. Do some research, find out what they're looking for, really deliver on the day. And if you don't make it at least you know you actually tried your best so so did you what was the process did you have to go to a cattle call did there was you... a cattle call right yep at um the metro in melbourne at the time it's mm-hmm. changed names now but it was a huge three-level nightclub um and they had film crews multiple sort of stations where you they were auditioning multiple people at a time and thousands of people were turning up so that opened the door doors at nine but if you weren't waiting in line at five you were wasting your time to show up. So I did that. I waited in line at, at 5 a.m. just kind of going, this is, I am actually too old for this, <laughs> too dignified. What, 25? Yes, or... yeah, yeah. This is not cool and I, you know, I don't know why I'm here, but okay, and I, yeah, that was a real... So what were the people around you like? Were oh, they were just... all really groovy. And I just remember, I still remember this, these um, guys who were next to me in the line and they were like, well, we were at Molly Meldrum's house on the weekend and I was like, I've never been to Molly Meldrum's house. I don't belong here. But you, of course, got the job and you, you know, became really, like, really famous um, quite quickly. Well, you know, I mean, to the people that were watching, which was everyone I knew, how did that shift work for you? Like, did you feel the difference or were you just continuing to do your thing? And Yeah, I, I think it, it was actually a bit of a shock, yeah. You don't know what you're in for. And I, whenever I see, you know, people on reality TV shows who are really thrown in the deep end, I have maximum sympathy for them. There's nothing that you can do to prepare you for being recognised in the street or having people write letters to you or email your work or any number of things. So it was re- I was really quite taken aback. But I was also very conscious that this was a great opportunity I'd been given and that I ought to be as tenacious as I could at hanging on to that opportunity and riding it for as long as I could. And of course at that time too you met a long-term partner, father of your eldest two children and he was a rock star. Yeah. So what that, that was Ben Ely from Regurgitator for those of you who don't know. How did you guys meet? Um, it was my birthday. and 26? Yeah, yeah. I think so and um I'd gone out with some mates and I was like, I cannot get laid in this city to save my life and it's my goddamn birthday. I expect to get laid tonight. And I honestly, people people did not talk to me. I never got hit on. Really? Yeah. That is astonishing. Yeah. Why? I don't know. I think I just just give off a spikiness mm. maybe. Um, and then Ben and I had been introduced earlier that day at the studio and we bumped into each other at the townie in Newtown, Sydney. And I was like, can you walk me home? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, damn right, I can. And that was it. Right. He ended up staying for two days. Two weeks later, I was pregnant. Two weeks? Yep. Wow. So that moved quite fast. Yeah, very fast. <laughs> but, I mean, it must have been good because you then had another child with the same person. Yeah. So you had a family. Yeah. And what was having a baby like? 
It was really great because it kicked me up the bum to grow up a lot and um, and start being a bit more responsible and love this little person. And I sometimes tell her that she saved my life because I was really, like, pretty wild and I suddenly, like, I just, like, it was slapped out of me. I had to step up. Well, there's nothing like having a child to give you a sense of purpose, hey? Yeah. What sort of a family did you have? I remember we lived in a rental in Bondi and I was wearing... I had a haircut like this. I was wearing a little schoolgirl's uniform because I thought it was cute and sort of ironic and pushing a pram and Ben was skateboarding. <laughs> and I remember just, I think my mum visited, she took a photo, she was like, you guys, <laughs> who do you think you are? And he's all covered in tats and he's skateboarding, pushing the pram and I'm like in my sexy uniform with my, you know, shaved head. I think we were just like having fun mostly but we had no idea what we were doing as parents. So why did that relationship end do you think we just weren't matched you know he's his guy and I'm mine and the two should probably never have tried it like we should have had some hot sex for a few months and then that was it I think we gave it a really good go for seven years and then it was like all right that's really that's really you can't say we didn't try Mm. So as a single mother, you, you got a job at Channel, Channel 10 mm. on, what, the first all-women panel show on Australian television? Is that true? Not sure. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it was quite successful called The Circle mm. and it was morning TV. So it was selling steam mops and diet pills and spanks and stuff like that, yeah. How was that experience for you, doing that kind of, you know, being suddenly, you know, in the, in the, the mainstream? Exactly. I mean, that, that's quite, you know, there is this sort of idea of a shift between independent and mainstream that you kind of broached. Did you feel like an imposter? Or oh, it... massively. And I really was, I really grappled with it because I'd always thought it was my job to be an outlier. Right. Very much part of your identity as well, I imagine. Totally. Be Mm. a rebel, be a misfit, you know, and represent the rebels and misfits. So sort of being brought across this very mainstream environment, I didn't know how I was supposed to go there. And I think I eventually settled into you're the rebel and you're the misfit here. So it's you, but it's you a little bit with the edges softened. But then around the time that you're working on The Circle, you met your current husband. Yeah. So how did you guys meet? We knew each other vaguely and he was this guy uh, introduced through a friend who was living in Libya and then London and Austria somewhere and he was just, just dropped me an email every now and then. Hey, how are you going? And I'd be like, oh, it's this guy. I don't even barely know you but whatever. So I'd been doing the circle for a year. I was suddenly getting paid enough that I didn't feel scared all the time. Right. And my daughter still remembers this moment when we were in the chemist and she held up this toy and, I, and she said, can I have this? And it was, I looked at the price, it was $19 and I said, yeah, you can. Because I had always said we can't afford it and that was just my line, we can't afford it, we can't afford it. And she was like, whoa, mum's letting me buy a new toy. It's not from the op shop. She couldn't believe it. Can I have this too? (laughs) And this and this. She's still got that toy too and she still, like, she remembers that turning point. So working at 10, I suddenly had enough money to relax a little bit and not just feel constantly scared. And my best friend was like, right, all you need now is someone to have sex with. And I was like, I have been here for a year and no one wants to have sex with me. This is such a confusing thing. (laughs) (laughs) 
I think, I, look, I don't understand it because I was certainly open about the fact that I was single. I was, you know, I went on a few dates. I don't know. I think I was taking the whole needing a stepdad thing too seriously. Like I just thought I have to audition right. them to be a stepdad. And I, I realised that that's all wrong. That's nothing to do with it. I have to audition them to be somebody I want to spend time with. Anyway, so my best friend was like, is there one guy in Melbourne that will fuck you over the summer break? And I was like, actually, this guy who emails me ran, I reckon he will. <laughs> she was like, great, but ring him, call him, tell him to bring Gatorade, he's going to need it, it's thirsty water. <laughs> so I did that. So, yeah, so then um, he came over and this all left my memory, but my best friend kept the text, she screenshot them. She was like, Yumi, Yumi, are you there? Are you okay? You haven't, you're not answering your phone. And then two days later I answered the phone I was like, that was the best sex I've ever had. I am going to marry this guy. I'd said that the morning after we consummated and I, and I forgot all about that. She's like, yeah, receipts. And yet. <laughs> why did you decide you wanted to marry him? You uh, hadn't married I hadn't men, married so, him, yeah. So why, what was the shift with, with Martin is his name? Yeah, um, Marty. Well, that's a bit of a boring one. I broke up with him and um, felt bad. Why did you break up with him? Uh, he was annoying. He's just always in my house. What are you doing here? Go do something else. <laughs> you know, and I'd worked so hard as a single mum and I'd achieved so much. I'd really come such a distance in my own personal development. I was like, maybe this isn't the best idea. So I broke up with him. We spent time apart and, um, and I just missed him. And I was like, that was a really bad call. Be better at communicating, you know, what you want and maybe he'll deliver. Meantime, you have to make it up to him because you broke his heart. So I just thought, how do I show him that I'm actually serious? So I proposed. Right. And he said yes straight away. Yeah. So you now have two more children with Martin. And for a while and possibly still, he was the primary carer for those kids. Is mm. that still the division of labour? Yeah. How does that get negotiated? Because it's still, sadly, not that common. No, it's not that common. And he did find picking up the kids from school or the stepkids, um, earlier in our relationship, people would always say, oh, so you got the day off work today at the school gate? And he'd be like, no, I'm just doing what I'm doing. Um, which is literally work. Which is literally work and it's work that I've been doing every day. Yeah, I think it's, it's a bit tricky because I do see most couples have both people working and I, I would love it if he worked as well. I just think it's kind of sexy to work. Mm. I like working. Um, but he likes parenting, so for the time being, that's how it is. You've also given up drinking. Mm. You've spoken about that quite a lot, but I'd be really interested for you to tell me what it was that finally shifted you there after a couple of false starts. Yeah, I think everybody's allowed a few false starts mm. and it's it's sort of part of the process. I mean, it's process. very common in, yeah. in, in giving up any addiction, isn't it? yeah. To, so I'd quit for two years. I'd quit during the pregnancies. So I knew what it felt like to quit. I knew the clarity, you know, the sort of feeling of healthfulness and, and better choices. So I don't know what made me drink the last time, but I think it was having a last sprint at it. Like I kind of knew that's what was happening. So what, you knew that you were, you were about to give up and you thought, well, I'm just going to like really go hard, <laughs> you know, really enjoy those beers because there will be no more beers. Yes, yeah, right. yes. Because in those two years of clarity, I was like, this has actually got to be my life. 
but you know just every now and then you're like oh and how do I reward myself and look at the color of that wine in that beautiful glass and it's just there's so many beckons so I had one last sprint at it and I thought it would last for three weeks and it went for about eight months an eight month kind of pretty heavy bender um and the whole time I was like this has got to stop I'm going to stop drinking tomorrow this is my last one and it would just you know, you just keep lying to yourself. You keep giving yourself permission or a leave pass or whatever. So when I finally got there, I was so relieved. How did you manage family life over that eight months? It, you know what? It, I was high functioning, so I wouldn't drink till sort of, you know, five or six. Right. So they're already kind of in the wind down and, and no one notices. And when you get to that really sloppy stage, you kind of hop into bed so no one no converses one with you and no mm. one sees it. One of the things that has happened sort of in the last few years, and I wonder whether this might have something to do with you being, you know, clear-headed, you've started speaking out politically more. Do you think there's a line between those two things or do you think that you're just more prepared to speak out on political issues or do you think that, I don't know, has there been a shift or is it just... Yeah, I think so, definitely. When when you're sober, it's it's... It's so much easier to trust your own judgment and maybe to think things through and really sit with a problem or, or a query and get to what feels like the truth. Um, I think when, you, when you're drinking, you're, you're more scatterbrained um, and you don't trust your judgment and you don't maybe have the resources or the attention span to really stick with something and see it through to deeply understand anything. And that definitely applies to, to lots of facets of my life. It's only been like four and a half years or something, maybe more. But in that time, I've literally written five books. And prior to that, there were no books. There was nothing like that. These long pro- projects require your attention span that drinking completely corrupts. In 2019, you're on television talking to Carrie Ann Kennelly about the date of Australia Day and the protests around that. And you and she got into an argument um, in which she spoke about having been to outback towns and seeing child abuse and stuff, and you called her out for being racist. Mm. What was going through your mind in that moment and then in the days and weeks to follow? Yeah, I really felt like, oh, no, at the time. Like, oh, oh, no, no. about you or no about what she was saying? Oh, no, I'm standing on this cliff and I have to jump (laughs) now because I knew that I couldn't live with myself if I didn't say something, but I also knew that I'm going to pay and I don't, I know how costly it can be because I've paid in the past. So it was in full cognizance of, of the stakes that I had to take the leap and my, my body, my poor body was in uproar about it. Uh, I looked quite calm in the footage, but my period came then and there. Oh, my God. Yeah, a week early. It was just like... You are You're in you, trauma. That, wow, what a bodily response. Yeah. But it was actually fine because in past arguments or past um, sort of, you know, for all pile-on situations, I've really been so confused and so punch drunk that I haven't been able to assess if what I said was wrong and I haven't been able to process it. Whereas in the that situation on Studio 10 with Kerry Ann Kennelly, I knew immediately that... I wasn't wrong, although the audience booed me and clapped her. So I had to, I had to say, okay, this particular society, representation of society, does not like me. I'm not safe here. 
but I'm pretty sure that my friends and the ones I care about, I think that they're with me. I'm, I'm, in fact, I, I'm, I'm sure that they are. You have said um, in the past, and, and I'm just going to quote you here because it's easier, if you're even just a little bit woke in this country, just by existing you start to become radicalised. Your thinking becomes more militant and you start to feel angry a lot of the time. An entertainer generally needs to be quite happy. So the two things have to find a way to coexist. How does that work? Well, I think you come back to my mum, you know. What can she give to people? And that's her joy. That's her kindness, forgiveness, acceptance, but also optimism. And as an entertainer, I think I can give all of those things as well. And you don't have to be all of those things all the time. You can have your moments of despair, rage, fury, violent emotions, and then you can come back to doing what maybe is helpful to a few people. Mm -hmm. Do you feel a kind of duty now you've started speaking out to speak out more? Mm, yeah. What, what, what is that? What's, that? what's driving that? I think that the... The criteria of my values is louder with each passing year. Right. My allegiance to my sisters, you know, the sisterhood is louder with each year. My daughters, um, the future women, like I just feel like we have to take up the mantle and really battle and really find the way in which we as an individual can fight, and it might, it's definitely different for each person, but in the way that you can, where your skills lie and your passions lie, you have to take up the fight. Do you think that public discourse around things like gender and race are shifting and evolving? Definitely, yeah. For better, for worse? Or for that? better. I think it's really entertaining to see the old white men in charge and how they still think that they have the right to comment on things that really they have no lived experience of. The rest of the world is kind of caught up to, oh, don't try and talk as an authority on things just because, you know, you went to uni. It's not enough. If you've lived it, you know. So let's listen to the people who've lived it. Um, but white men still think that they have that privilege and the rest of us are like, lol, good one, <laughs> look at that guy, <laughs> we're laughing at you. You've said that life is long. Mm. Do you feel like you have time to do everything you want to do? No. <laughs> I'm scared. I'm so scared. And a lot of, I think, my mania to try and do everything is um, I feel like I wasted a lot of time drinking and didn't achieve things that I should have or could have. So I really want to try and do as much as I can uh, before my time runs out. But that said, I was in bed last night. Two of my children climbed in with me. My stinky, hairy husband was there as well. And I really felt like I am so rich. You know, this is genuine love. I'm, I'm literally smothered in love. Wow. And then I'd, I'd got home from signing copies of my book. I had a really fun day of work ahead of me today and I just felt so lucky. So I feel like, yeah, I want to do so much, but I also need to just remember to go, this is actually, like, this is actually glorious. Well, Uni Steins, I hope you continue to do glorious things for some time yet. Thank you so much for coming in and talking to me today. Thank you for your very thoughtful questions. You can watch this talk, along with the others, on our video platform called Stream. You'll find the link in our show notes. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time.